Andrew certainly likes, you know, young, pretty girls. Allegations that Virginia Jeffrey brought against Andrew have never been investigated by the police. I wanted to find out, you know, who was accompanying him on these trips, or were they there to help Andrew? For the night when he was in London and Virginia Jeffrey accuses him uh, of uh, having um, gone to bed with her. Yeah. Um, that, and he claims that he was in Windsor. Oh, so very suspicious. So, you know, there's plenty of evidence, pictures of him and testimony in papers for the period saying he came out of a nightclub sweating. Yeah. Um, and plenty of things, you know, how, the last time you saw Epstein, the first time you met Epstein, the files were destroyed. When I asked when they'd been destroyed, I was told after I'd asked for them. I mean, this is the behavior of, of Russia and China, the way that we curate, they curate the narrative, they destroy records. If you make life difficult, we can make life difficult for you. So you have to ask, you know, there's, is there a rule for the rich and powerful and a rule for everyone else? Is there evidence you've heard about Andrew and the allegations? Oh, Andrew Loney's back on the show, everybody. Now, everyone loved Andrew Loney last time when he was talking a little bit, focusing more, I should say, on, on Mountbatten, Dickie Mountbatten. Today, there's a bit more focus on another Andrew. Not me, not Andrew Loney, but Prince Andrew. Do they even have surnames? Every time I say that, people email saying, yes, they have surnames. It's something like Windsor or Mountbatten, or I don't even know what. But, but I don't know. Wikipedia told me that a lot of them don't even have surnames. So who do I believe? Who do I believe? Andrew is a publisher. He wrote uh, some fantastic books that we'll have the uh, links to below about Dickie Mountbatten, who allegedly, or not even allegedly, was abusing children in the King Cora boys' home. Um, he wrote about Prince Edward, the traitor king, who went off and sided with the Nazis. And we'll talk a bit about that, and we'll talk about Meghan and Harry, of course, because there were a lot of parallels between Harry and Edward and Andrew, who are all three of them in, well, Edward in a weird sense, because he was supposed to be king, but they were all spares, and they all behaved in treacherous manners. But I think the main focus today will be Prince Andrew and what Andrew Loney, the publisher and writer, what inside knowledge he has. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, and, and also he has some inside knowledge, I think, about Omid Scobie, uh, the guy who wrote Meghan and Harry's, or the book about the royals recently. He's sort of Meghan and Harry's cheerleader. So do go check out Andrew's books. They're in the description. He is just such a great talker. People love listening to him. Uh, he's a really popular one on the show. So I hope you like it. Andrew's definitely a heretic uh, in, in how he speaks out against some of the stuff that none of the mainstream press will talk about. And that's another point always to remind you guys of. This is the kind of uh, episode you're just not going to get on the mainstream podcast and the mainstream TV channel. So please do share this podcast far and wide because a lot of people don't want to hear it and should hear it. Check out the YouTube version as well. Uh, Heretics, Andrew Gold, go and find it. It looks beautiful, 4K, really nice where we set up this beautiful warehouse. Now you're sitting down and listening to a heretic. It's Andrew Loney. What has it been like writing about and trying to expose some of the abuses in in the the royal history, Mountbatten, Prince Andrew? What's what's it? What's the reaction been to you? Well, it's, it's two two stages really. The, the, first of all, the problem of getting access to the material. Uh, royal files are generally closed. For example, I'm doing Prince Andrew at the moment. Those files will be closed until 2065, 105 wow. years after his birth. So he'll be dead, as will I. <laughs> um, but it's, it's uh, and, and when you do find things, as I did, for example, find the FBI file on Mountbatten uh, for my book on him, uh, saying that he had a predilection for, for 
paedophilia, um, the files were destroyed. And when I asked when they'd been destroyed, I was told after I'd asked for them. So there's a sort of hoovering up process that goes on even when things begin to emerge. And again, with Batten, uh, we know that Carl Loggs were kept at Classyborn where he abused some boys in the August 1977, who I interviewed for the book. Uh, we know that those Carl Loggs still exist. But the Guard are refusing to release them on the grounds that um, they're part of a murder investigation. But the murder took place two years later, uh, and someone has gone to prison. He's actually come out of prison. Uh, and to be honest, they shut down the whole story because of the Good Friday Agreement. So um, we, we have this the whole time. The Concora Boys' Home, which is where one of the boys was trafficked from. Uh, again, the files there have been heavily weeded, what we call dry cleaned. Uh, and though they've eventually found their way because of campaigns by various people, including Chris Moore, who's a journalist in Ireland, uh, to, to, to release them, they, they, there's nothing in them. And what's also very clear is when they do have hearings, they're very prescribed terms, and they, they select very tame judges. I mean, that, that's there in the correspondence. So the reaction is generally either to say nothing and hope the problem goes away, or to try and discredit the messenger like me, uh, to say that they're not serious historians, um, uh, there's nothing new in this, etc. So there is, a, and, and they use the tame historians who rely on basically being given the titbits. So it's a sort of carrot and stick policy. If you if you go along with us, we'll make life easy. We'll get, put you on quangos. If you make life difficult, we can make life difficult for you. So as you know, I think I've talked in the past about the close to half a million pounds it cost me in a legal case <sighs> to get access to Mountbatten's diaries and letters. And this wasn't a case I brought. This was a case that was brought against me, an appeal against the information commissioner, who is the regulator, to which I was joined. Uh, and we know that they brought that case, knowing that the material should have been open. It was bought with public monies. Uh, all the fundraising was on the basis it would be open. Uh, and one of the ironies is they released all the material that they'd fought to keep closed for 10 years just before the hearing. So in the end, the hearing was just about a few exemptions. So they can make life difficult. I mean, I've put in some subject access requests, which you can do now under data protection to see what public authorities have on you, the correspondence. And that the, the current office said that they had so much material that they were refusing to release it because of the cost compliance element. So I then narrowed the research as it would take 965 hours, I think, to go through it. So I restricted it to six month periods. And even then that released about 100 pages showing that they were monitoring I mean, the most obscure book talks that I gave, wow. uh, an employment tribunal a former employee had brought, a defamation case against me, both of which I'd won, uh, applications for jobs in government, public appointments were shared with the cabinet office. Uh, so it's kind of sinister. And mm -hmm. again, there's a lot of briefing to the press, complete lies are told about something. And I, for example, David Owen, the former private uh, foreign secretary, was a supporter of mine. And he was just fed a tissue of lies by the cabinet office about the case. Wow. Uh, and they lie to parliament, they lied to the courts, uh, and they've um, uh, lied to the media. What does it feel like to be sort of public enemy number one? Would you say you are a heretic in this sense as a, as a publisher and a, and a writer and historian going against the grain? Well, I mean, in principle, as a writer, yes. Um, yes. I mean, and I think they don't like it because uh, it's not as if I, I'm a madman. Um, you know, I have a, a, a PhD, former Cambridge fellow. Mm. Uh, you can hear I seem reasonably sensible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I put fo footnotes in. Yeah. Uh, and so it's much more difficult to, to do that. Also, you know, my books have had good 
critical coverage in the past as serious books with serious research. So it's more difficult to try and discredit me. But so I, I mean, I'm not certainly public num uh, enemy number one. In some ways, it makes me want to go on further because I think, why should they get away with this? And I think also it's about the relationship between the governed and the government. And if the civil service or politicians can't be trusted and aren't transparent, then that goes to the very heart of the, the relationship of being in a democracy. I mean, this is the behavior of, of Russia and China, the way that we curate, they curate the narrative, they destroy records. Something like 95% of historical records are destroyed with no record kept. Who is responsible for this? Because it does sound like the Stasi or something, doesn't it? And who's the person at the top going, right, destroy those records? Well, I don't think there's one person who's masterminding it. Um, there's something called the Knowledge Management Department, which is the sort of records management element of, of the Cabinet Office. And they seem to be one of the prime uh, movers in this. I mean, the irony is that they're in charge of information uh, regulation. Uh, they employ the regulator, which is why the regulator perhaps pulls his punches a bit, because what the Cabinet Office have done is they've basically halved the, um, the money given to the information regulator as their workload has doubled. Hmm. So that helps cut down anything. The Cabinet Office is one of the worst offenders of FOI infringement. Uh, and because- so Freedom of information just for those, oh, it's the same in the, in the US, is it? Yes, it is. Sorry, yes, I'm using Freedom of Information. And you know, there are laws, there's Freedom of Information Act, I mean, there are laws, and there's a Public Record Act saying this material should be released. So I think they're one of the prime movers. Uh, and some um, records management elements of, of government departments are good. I mean, for example, MI5 have a regular release program, and there's some very interesting stuff coming out, a lot of SOE files, Special Operations Executive from World War II are coming out, and it's leading to reassessments of our history, to books, uh, and really pushing forward scholarship. Uh, I mean, the worst offenders, I think, probably are people like the Metropolitan Police, who should be hmm. upholding the law, uh, who admit that most of their records they haven't even catalogued going back to the 1930s. So it's a real mess, but no one seems concerned about FOI. Um, no politician is going to vote for um, for Christmas. It's he's, you know like a turkey. Mm. Why again? Like what, what is it? Why would the police do it? Is it just out of carelessness, or are they going like, no, we need to protect the royals? Well, it's not just royal stuff. Uh, there is a culture of secrecy. Uh, I think the fact is they, they don't know what they've got, so it's easy to say we haven't got it because they haven't done the cataloging. Yeah. I think there is just, uh, um, you know, clearly there's law enforcement elements. There are uh, pr um, personal data elements which are very sensitive with the police. But I think they, they go way over the top. So, for example, I've got a case at the moment where I asked for a protection file for the Duke of Windsor from 1932. So it's almost 100 years old. And the Information Commissioner agreed with the Met that the release of this document would imperil the present safety of the royal family. Oh, my God. Uh, and so I took it to a tribunal. And that tribunal was last November, uh, over a year ago. And they still haven't reported. It was a half-day tribunal. Um, but their argument was that, uh, and there's no evidence to support this, that terrorists might go into the National Archives, wade through a 500-page file, which is all about the subsistence allowance for detectives, uh, and somehow find uh, some element to kill the royal family. And this is from Prince Harry, who's given away, for example, the floor plan of Buckingham Palace in spare. Yeah. Um, so the whole thing is, is just ridiculous. Uh, and... And, you know, all one can do is keep shouting about it in the hope that the public will pick up on this issue. Historians will begin to lobby Parliament uh, and parliamentarians, of which and there are many parliamentarians who write books and are historians, you know, will, will come forward and do something about it. Yeah. Do they have files on all of us? Have they got files on me? Have they got files on everyone who's spoken about the royals or, or high standing members of Parliament? 
Well, I don't know. I mean, the the, the Cabinet Office, the, their files are based on what they call media monitoring. They want to just chart public opinion. And they certainly kept files on people, for example, who were critical of what was happening during COVID, uh, anyone who's critical of the royal family. Uh, I'm, I'm a monarchist, but it doesn't mean that they should be given a, a free reign to behave as they wish above the law. Mm. Um, uh, you may have a file, I don't know. I mean, given the sort of people you talk to, possibly. I mean, MI5 clearly keep files. Um, but the problem is we, we just don't know. I mean, the, I, I know um, I got some material from the Cabinet Office, but I, uh, I know it's only a small fraction of what they could have provided. And quite often I do these subject access requests across different departments, and I get one side of a correspondence correspondence and not the other uh, from one. So you know that there's a lot more out there that's revealed by, by some of the information you've already got. Some of the stuff you've been looking into involves Prince Andrew. I know the book is far off. You're, you're thinking of that in some time yet. Yeah, 2025, I think. 2025. I guess what controversy is that going to bring about? What are some of the, where are some of the places you're poking and, and well, are you concerned for your life, really? Uh, no, I think I'm touch wood okay. But um, uh, yes, the focus is on his time as a public servant when he wasn't a member of the royal family, in effect, but but, uh, but working for the government. Mm. And this was the 10 years when he was a trade envoy from 2001 to 2011. And there was a lot of criticism of his role there, which was meant to drum up British trade. But there were suggestions that he took some of his chums, people who paid off debts, for example, for his ex-wife, uh, and that he was doing business himself as a fixer. Uh, now, not, it's, th these are accusations that have been made often by people who uh, were dealing with him, uh, so diplomats and, and perhaps some of the people on the tour. So I wanted to find out, you know, who was accompanying him on these trips mm -hmm. uh, and what were the arrangements. Now, the, pa the, the papers for the Trade Department and the Foreign Office for that period uh, have to be released after 20 years unless they fulfill certain exemptions. So we should have basically the papers going back to at least 2003, uh, when he had 2003. So we should have the first two years of that period. Um, but all the files, as I say, are closed until 2065. That's uh, mad. Uh, yeah. And, you know, you ask, for example, who was on the royal flight? Can I have the, the, the flight logs? Uh, they refuse to release them or say they don't have them. Uh, the line is they don't have them. The Foreign Office and, and, and the Trade say they have no record of this, this 10 years. And I've talked to diplomats who, who organized the trips, who were dealing with all the correspondence. You say there's voluminous uh, correspondence dealing with this, which must be somewhere, but no one will say where it is uh, and, and, or if it's been kept. Uh, and this, of course, would be very revealing. Who were on these trips? Were they there drumming up trade for Britain? Or were they there to help Andrew? And if, you know, he wanted to clear his name, you would have thought he would be happy for these logs to come out. So, for example, we know uh, for the night when he was in London and Virginia Giffray accuses him uh, of uh, having um, gone to bed with her. Yeah. Um, that and he claims that he was in Windsor. Uh, the, we do have the, the the logs. Well, the logs are kept by the protection officers, uh, and there will be logs, for example, who came in and out of Buckingham Palace on that night. And yet, those logs, uh, which are you know less than twenty years old, have been destroyed. They say. Oh. So you have to wonder why are they being destroyed? I mean, these are logs which are normally kept. It's very suspicious. So, so there's a lot of material that's <clears throat> rather suspicious, as you say, is being destroyed after the event. It's, this is, it's very worrying because I, I, I don't have a strong opinion about the monarchy either way. They seem to be quite a 
an interesting thing to have and a symbol that unites people in some respects and I understand both sides um, well I think that you know they do a terrific job in terms of soft power and tourism earnings you know they unite the nation uh, you know they do a terrific amount of work for charity so I think there are lots and lots of very good things about the monarchy but that doesn't mean that they say should be above the law that they should be feathering their own pocket from public work yeah. uh, they shouldn't be uh, I mean there are allegations that that Virginia Jeffrey brought against Andrew have never been investigated by the police. No, if it was you and me, you know, something would yeah. have been done. So you have to ask time and time again, oh, there's, is there a rule for the rich and powerful and a rule for everyone else? Yeah, absolutely. And and when they get involved in the, the, the royal family in politics, as, as he was doing, I mean, trade, that's politics, isn't it, that he's getting involved in, for that to then be locked away, that's a huge problem. Because that's not democracy then, that's not transparency. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, any other uh, trade delegate would, would, would you know, have be open to some sort of scrutiny. Uh, the papers would be available. Uh, and so why is he different? Wow. And so, I mean, the suspicion then, and, and I don't think we'd be the first to say it, is that he... he might be guilty of doing I mean I don't know about if he was he said he was in Peter Express was he in uh, he doesn't sweat and all of these things well exactly I think one of the problems when he did the Newsnight interviews he made a series of assertions uh, one of which as you say was he didn't sweat well you know there's plenty of evidence pictures of him and testimony in papers for the period saying he came out of a nightclub sweating yeah um, and plenty of things you know how the last time you saw Epstein the first time you met Epstein you know have been shown to be palpably untrue so uh, we have to ask, you know, on these trade delegations, he didn't always stay with the ambassador. He went to uh, hotels, which we paid for, five-star hotels. Why did he do that? Was that because he didn't want to be, to, to, to be seen to be doing whatever he was doing? Uh, and we know there were requests being put to diplomats, for example, by members of his staff, asking for him, them basically to produce pretty woman for him. Yeah. Um, Is so, that right? Uh, one woman who gave him a massage lost her job when she spoke out about it. So th there are a lot of big questions about him. He's very close to a man called um, David Rowland, who he goes and who runs a bank for basically very, very rich people. And they're just the sort of people that Andrew's meeting. Rowland has been on one of these trips, I understand. Um, and Rowland paid off some of Fergie's debts. So um, there's a suggestion that Epstein may have gone on some of these trips as well. Uh, and... Um, you know, there's a case that's just going through the court at the moment where a large sums of money were placed in Andrew's uh, bank account, hundreds of thousands of pounds, which he couldn't really explain. Uh, and some money was put in his daughter's bank account. They claimed it was a wedding present or uh, money to, to organize a party. And this was from someone who hardly knew them. So, but the press don't really report these cases. Uh, and, you know, people are turning a blind eye and they know that. And that means that their behavior and I said it's only a limited number of royals, of which I think Andrew is one of the, the, the worst offenders, are behaving like this. It's, it really infuriates me because I've only just started a business for this and I've never done all the business stuff. I'm not very good at it. And I'm suddenly realizing, oh my God, I've got to pay 20% VAT on this and that's just my earnings and there's another percentage and another and it's all going away and I can't believe it. And the amounts are minuscule compared to what Prince Andrew's dealing with and I'm paying it all. Why isn't he doing it? Well, I can't believe he's not held to the same standard, or at least even even more of a standard. Well, I mean, there was a big fight for the Queen to pay tax, and eventually that happened. But they now, the civil list, the money that's given to her, the sovereign grant, um, 
you know, I think is tied into inflation and, and, and a percentage of their profits. And of course, they're making record profits, various, I mean, the Duchy of Lancaster and, and, and Cornwall. Yeah. So, um, I mean, there was a big controversy the other day because uh, money that isn't, uh, the, the, the people, when people die and test it, that money goes, for example, the Duchy of Lancaster that goes into Charles's pocket. Yeah. So there are a lot of controversies about their wealth. They're, you know, the wills are sealed. We don't know what's in them. Are you know, are they doing tax dodges? You know, we have the extraordinary story of of uh, uh, Andrew's marital home, Sunninghill um, Park, given to him by the Queen. Cost five million pounds. She then basically um, uh, gifted it to, to him, and so he didn't have. He did a, a complicated thing through a trust, so he didn't pay capital gains on it when it was sold. Um, it was sold for way above the the valuation. By that point, it had been, but um, basically abandoned and was derelict. Uh, and and the man who bought it for more than three million pounds over the asking price turned out to be one of the dictators that he was doing business with as a trader. Oh, it's boy. just mad. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? the internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. 
I can't I can't handle that. It's I can't believe well, some of this stuff. It sort of puts people off. I mean, you know, the monarchy does a great job, but I think these people, these bad apples, you know, affect people's view of the monarchy. And, yeah. You know, we're going we're seeing, you know, with the, the problems over Harry and Meghan, uh, as well as Andrew uh, uh, and and the whole racist debate that's going on at the moment. You know, that is quite a sort of big thing for the royal family because you know, it's not so much here. We don't necessarily believe what Meghan Markle says, but they believe it in the states, uh, and this is just sort of lighting the 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 the, the paper in in the Caribbean. You know, we, we're seeing people leave the Commonwealth. There's this big debate about um, slavery and the involvement of the royal family, and so this all plays very badly if the royal family are seen to be racist. Wow. Well, we'll get, let's get on to Meghan and Harry in a minute because I do want to ask you about that. Just one thing, one last thing on Andrew. His his character, I understand, is, is just not a nice bloke. Is he? I remember hearing stuff about weird stuff about teddy bears and also just being incredibly rude to staff. Is that right? Yes, he's very rude to staff. He's very arrogant. He feels he's this, you know he's a, he's a, the son of the monarch. He can behave as he wants, and he believes in the divine right of kings. Mm. Uh, so he'll summon staff. You know, from downstairs to open the curtains, which he could open himself. Oh God! He'll use a prote police protection officer to go and pick up his golf balls when he sends him down the, <laughs> the fairway. Um, I have to say, very few people had a good word to say about him, and he stands on ceremony. I mean, it's a famous story with this commanding officer in the navy, and Andrew said to him, "You can call me Andrew," and the commanding officer said, "Yes, and you can call me Sir." Um, but, you know, lots and lots of stories how, you know, he's been very jovial one minute uh, and he'll come in at a weekend party the next and um, people are reading the papers and chatting and he'll say, shall I redo this again? And they look at him in surprise and he says, you stand up when I come in. Oh, what? piece of shit <laughs> i just can't i can't handle it at the same time it's he's a product of his environment to an extent you grow up like that i mean this is what i think about harry as well you grow up in that kind of environment and well, you're sort of the spare well you know. but you know remember they've both gone to you know they've not been educated at, at, in, 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 at home i mean they've gone out to school they've mixed in the rough and tumble of service life mm. um uh, they both served in action so you know these are not people who've been mollycuddled um they, you know, and also there are plenty of members of the royal family. Um, his other siblings, I mean, Edward and Anne, don't behave like this. Mm. You know, they're completely different. I mean, very good to the staff. Uh, the staff are very loyal to them. I mean, it's a huge turnover of staff for Andrew. Um, so, you know, it's about character. I'm afraid, not about the upbringing. Is there? evidence you've heard about Andrew and the allegations with regards to, I suppose, was it trafficking and when the women being procured for him by Epstein? Is, is there evidence that you you can't reveal that you might, it might be too much? Well, I mean, you know, he was very close to Epstein. You know, he went supposedly to, to, to end this relationship and stayed for several days with him while he did so. Uh, there's no doubt that Epstein opened doors for him uh, business-wise and vice versa, introduced him to useful people. Um, and also Epstein, you know, was a, a, a trafficking woman. I mean, that's pretty clear. Uh, and providing women for his guests, people who are on the Lolita Express, people who are staying with him. Uh, and, you know, it's not just Virginia Jeffries come forward, but others. There's the famous film of him uh, sort of whispering sweet nothings to someone as she left uh, Epstein's home in New York. So, um, 
I think uh, other women have come forward. A lot of people have been paid off. A lot of people are too scared to speak. Mm. But I think there's a certain amount of evidence. I mean, I don't think he, 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 he took advantage of the women who were on offer. Um, and I don't think they were that young. I mean, we're talking about women probably 16 up. We're not talking mm. about little children. Which in the UK, there'll be a different feeling for British viewers than American viewers. Yeah. And, and I think also there are a lot of very mature looking 16 year olds. Um, you know, so we're not looking, I mean, Batten was involved with 12-year-old boys. I mean, that's a yes. very different story. The difference between that P word and hebophilia, which I believe J.D. Salinger was a famous person who had that, which is an attraction to post-pubescent or pubescent. It was new to me, yes. But I mean, Andrew certainly likes, you know, young, pretty girls. Um, but he also likes, you know, older women. He's had a whole series of relationships with much older woman, yeah. more of his own age. So um, I, I don't think he's a paedophile at all. Mm. And, you know, to be fair, there are certain, uh, there's quite a lot of evidence to, to suggest that that picture was doctored. Um, Do you think it was? I, I haven't come to a conclusion on it yet, but but some of the stuff that I've been shown is quite convincing, the, you know, where the arm should be, the, 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 I mean, experts in, ca in taking photographs, you know, the, the reflection in the eyes, the perspectives, uh, and of course, we don't have the origin of the picture, uh, and the person who discovered it with him, uh, Sharon Churchill, has begun to distance herself from Virginia Jeffrey. Jeffrey's testimony has been shown to, to be not always consistent. Uh, she accused Alan, uh, Alan Dershowitz, an American lawyer, of having uh, been trafficked to her, and he was he won a case against her. She settled a case. So, you know, there are, it's a very murky area and trying to get the, the, the truth is, is very difficult because you're relying on only a few people who are there who are all saying different things. Not an easy book to write. Not easy. I mean, libel will be a big problem. <laughs> uh, and of course, as you said, as you, the no dirt records, which is what you normally rely on, and the testimony, people don't talk. There's an emerge around the royal family. They either want to remain within the circles or they're scared or they don't want to get involved. So much easier to say no or not answer than to, to get involved. With Meghan and Harry, uh, going back to what you were saying before, I get the feeling it might just be my YouTube bubble that Americans don't necessarily believe her. Um, about the race and the unconscious bias. Yeah, I think she, she's she's kind of gone too far this time. I mean, remember, this is only through her own uh, a spokesperson, in effect, Scobie. But, you know, she's, it would be very easy for her to come forward and say, look, there's been a huge misunderstanding here. I never said anyone was racist, and I'm sorry for any upset it's caused. But her silence I speaks, uh, speaks volumes. Mm -hmm. But also, the, you know, the version of the story has changed. You know, it was one person, then it was two, mm -hmm. the suggestions that maybe three. It was told to Harry. Uh, it was concern rather than anything else. So the whole story has moved each time. Uh, and so I think, you know, and she's been shown to, to, to be a liar on so many things. I mean, the car ch chase in the center of Manhattan where no traffic moves at more than five miles an hour. Mm. Um, so insidious, really, to, to play on the memory of Diana in that way. It, yes, yes. She's very cynical and not very bright. Um, mm. And, you know, I think people even in the States are getting wise to her. I think we've been wise to her for a long time. And, and when I was interviewing for my Matt Batten book, which was came out in 2000 and, 19. So this is a good six, six years ago. There was concern then about Meghan. Um, and that was even, I think, before they got married. Mm. So I think people knew what, you know, where she was coming from. And, you know, the whole history, the fact that she's fallen out with her own family, she's, you know, cancelled all her friends. 
I, I think is is quite revealing about her character. Mm. Eventually, the buck stops with with somebody, and you know, maybe maybe her. The omniscope. I mean, this is actually. I didn't even think to ask you this, but this could be as, as you're a publisher. How could Omid Scobie's book, a manuscript of it, and I think we can name who was named now because everyone has, because Piers Morgan did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They named Charles and Kate, was it? And even then, it's not clear because it appears that Kate is just talking in a letter to Charles about that I don't even know, but about whether the baby. I mean, and then there's a separate question about if that's racist at all because most people yeah. don't think it is. It's exactly, it's curiosity. Yeah, but how did that get into the Dutch translation? Uh, I think what happened was that uh, an early version of the manuscript, before it had been properly legaled, uh, was sent for translation. So no what normally happens is the book comes in, it's edited, it will then have a legal read and things will be taken out. Uh, and clearly he'd put the names in um, uh, and they were taken out for the British and other editions. Uh, um, but uh, through some cock-up, uh, the, the version was sent to Holland uh, and they didn't get the final version. That's one explanation. But I think it's interesting that Holland is the smallest territory that you can sell rights to. So if you're going to pulp a book, that's the best territory to do it in. Oh, It's only about two or 3,000 copies. Oh, so I like if this. If you want an excuse <laughs> to get a story out and claim it's a cock-up, then sending it through, doing it through the Dutch publishers. What oh. will be interesting is the his agent has taken the blame for it. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see what happens, whether action is taken against the agent for that. Um, uh, and I mean, we all have to have insurance to cover cock-ups like that, that we might just inadvertently make, or, or if the whole thing goes quiet. So that's what I would uh, recommend, see what, what happens, what f actions are taken, because the Dutch publisher will have lost money, clearly, at pulping a book and having to reprint it. Uh, and who's going to, to make up that cost? Interesting. What about Luxembourg, is that not an area? Belgium? Well, those wouldn't be separate territories. I mean, Holland is a separate territory. I mean, the other thing is Holland is such a small territory because they all speak English anyway. So they're very, you know, th that's why the runs there are so small because everyone's going to buy it in English anyway. Uh, and the cost of translation is high. Uh, why would you bother translating it to people who could read it, who want to buy it and could read it in English anyway? And that's true of Scandinavia as well, but they're slightly bigger markets. Interesting. I, I'm really fascinated by that. I was. I did wonder because so obviously there is a, a conspiracy around. You know, people are wondering was this done as a PR stunt because it got so many more people talking about the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, 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 I think my instinct would be towards the PR stunt. You know that, that, wow. that there was. A, you know, they, they could they could say that it was an, a, a genuine accident, but um, these sort of accidents, particularly on a high sensitive book like that, don't happen. You know, you are very, very careful what you send out. We don't send out anything which hasn't been legaled already to anyone, you know, whether it's for serial or whether it's for foreign rights. Mm. So it doesn't really get beyond the editor and the lawyer uh, until it is in a fit state to go up because you could be sued. So uh, I'm, I'm a little cynical about the whole exercise. And then he says he never wrote, Omid Scobie never even wrote this in any manuscript, manuscripts. It, it's well, that must be a complete lie. Because it has to be, doesn't it? No one, no a translator only translates, as they said. They don't add anything. I felt really sorry for the translator that sort of doorstepped her and, she, you know, this poor woman who's just doing her job. Doing her job. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you can't trust anything Scobie says either. No. You know, I think the interesting thing is supposedly it's only sold six and a half thousand copies because I think one of the sad things is, you know, you can write the complete rubbish and people out of curiosity will buy the book. I mean, Spare is a good example, which I think is the fastest selling book ever.
um, and has made him a lot of money. Um, and it's based on a tissue of lies. Uh, so, or his own truth, shall we say. Um, so, you know, that has made a lot of money by being sensationalist. Uh, and, you know, it's annoying if you're trying to write serious books, which you're trying to tell the truth rather than just being sensationalist. And those books won't sell as well. But it's, it's you know, it's like taking a diet. If you mm. have a diet saying, you know, eat less, and a diet saying just eat tomatoes, you know which one will be the bestseller. <laughs> but Scobie's book didn't sell well, and it was sensationalist. Uh, well, this one hasn't sold well. The first book did. Right. I, I was. I read some reviews saying you know the worst thing you can say about a book, which is that it was boring. Well, you know, I think there are a lot of people there who are interested in the Meghan Harry story and will buy anything. Um, and a lot of people are very sympathetic and feel that they've been introduced by the royal family and the press. But, you know, my own feeling is, you know, the press responded to Meghan uh, and the royal family did too, with open arms. They tried to to integrate her. Uh, and uh, I don't buy the story that, that, you know, she was forced out. She, she wanted to have everything on her own terms. And, you know, and the point is that when you join the royal family, you know, there's certain rules you behave, you, you follow. Uh, you can't commercialize your activities. You have to behave with a certain amount of dignity. Uh, and I've heard, you know, she's like Fergie. She, she hasn't done that. Yeah. yeah. I, I saw, yeah, it's a weird one, isn't it? Because I guess growing up when I was younger, I'd have felt a little bit more uh, about individual liberty. And it's like, you, you you know, you should be able to do what you want, go in there, and then you can be ambitious and do your thing. And I think as I've gotten a bit older, I'm now seeing it as like, well, I don't believe that the serendipitous falling in love with a prince happens just like, you know, I think you go after Prince Harry because you want to be part of that. Well, family. there's quite a lot of evidence that, I mean, you should claim not to know anything about him. And yet she has sort of posters and, on, of him on the wall and talked about him. <laughs> so, I mean, I, you know, again, you can't believe that story. And I mean, the various intermediaries, how they met as that story has changed. Mm. But it's not about liberty. I mean, if she wants to go off as a, a member of the public and do things, mm. that's fine. But she's doing it as a member of the royal family. You know, if they want a title for their children. Uh, they still, of course, have the title Duke and Duchess of, of, of Sussex. Uh, and, you know, you can't have it both ways. You know, if you take the title, you, you, you have to, to do the job. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, you can be playing Mrs. Mountbatten-Windsor, um, but she's not going to get the endorsements and the attention if she has that. Would it have been possible for her to go in, and maybe Diana did this, or, uh, to go in and maybe ruffle a few feathers, but still be beloved, uh, still be seen, perceived to have done the duty of a royal, but being able to achieve maybe her ambitions, which is to be a bit of a, a model and a book writer and these kinds of things? Well, I think everything was possible when she went in. And the Queen, for example, gave her the job of dealing with the Commonwealth, which would have been good, which would have played to what she thinks, you know, the issues she thinks are important. I mean, she goes on about racism. Hmm. Um, so I think people tried to to, 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 to to create a package that would play to her strengths. But, you know, she wants, to, she doesn't want, she's not a team player. Uh, and she wants, you know, she wants to make a lot of money, which you can't do clearly in the royal family. Um, she wanted to be controversial, which you can't be. Um, so, you know, it, 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 it really wasn't going to work. Uh, you can't be half in, half out, I think was the line from the Queen. And she's absolutely right. Mm. Have they, is, is, does history just, does history just repeat itself with um, Edward and, and Wallace Simpson, The Traitor King, which is another book you've written? Uh, tell me a bit about some of the parallels. Well, there are interesting parallels. I mean, this is another case, uh, for those who don't know the story of Edward VIII, this man who gave up the throne to marry an American divorcee. Um, uh, and so 
okay, it's it's someone who was who inherited as opposed to was the spare. But you know, the behavior afterwards is, is very similar. There's the same fight, for example, over status, over titles. Uh, there's the same falling out with the family uh, and siblings. There's the same debates over money, uh, security, the curation of the story, uh, working with tame journalists and biographers, uh, trying to sue the press. Uh, endorsing the most inappropriate things like cutlery and bed linen, mm. uh, mixing with sort of trash, basically, you know, uh, cafe society. Yeah. Um, so there are lots and lots of parallels. And I think if they'd looked at those parallels, they, there might have been a lesson there for them. I would, there's a quote I've got. Uh Loney, as in you, reveals a couple obsessed with their status, financially exploiting their position and manipulating the media. Filled with treachery and betrayal, this is a story of an exiled royal and why the royal family never forgave him for choosing love over duty. And I read that thinking that could be... I, that, that could be well, Harry and Meghan. Or I think that was deliberate. That was done by that's the the publisher's blurb uh, <laughs> on Amazon. But exactly, and that, you know, and a lot of people, you know, I think have bought the book because they're interested in the parallels. Um, I mean, there are also certain parallels, for example, with with Andrew, who is the spare, mm. and it's the same prob um, uh, problem there of, of uh, as with Harry of, of trying to find a role for them when their characters aren't perhaps very suitable. I mean, clearly Edward and Anne have found roles, but Andrew, for example, likes money and gold. Golf, which is exactly what Duke of Windsor liked. Uh, so, you know, you do see patterns of behavior, the same sort of um, uh, standing on ceremony that the Duke of Windsor had, the, the pomposity and the arrogance you see again in Andrew. So there are, mm. I mean, the trope of the crown, I think, is very good. It's, it's, it's the debate between public duty and private pleasure. And the rogue royals that I write about want private pleasure, the Fergies, the Andrews, the Duke of Windsors. Um, and then you have the, 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 the dignified public servants who personify the monarchy. So the George V, George VI, mm -hmm. the Queen, I mean, even Prince Philip, yeah. uh, Princess Anne, Prince Charles and Kate and, Kate and William. Exactly. Mm. Um, so, you know, and, and, and those are the two strands. And, and the problems arise when the, the, the ones who, who want to have a good time and use their position just for their own pleasure cause problems for all the others who are, you know, putting their heads down and getting on with the job. It is a difficult one because as I was alluding to before that I do like the idea of the rascal, the rebel, the rebel, the the heretic. That's what this show is about. And I, I like the idea that people are going, I'm not going to, because Kate, uh, Kate and William are, they're, they're fine and nice and I have a lot of respect for them, but they're a little bit dull, I think. Well, you know? I, they have to be. I'm sure behind, it's a yeah. bit like the Queen. You know, I feel very sorry because clearly here was a woman who was highly intelligent, great mimic, great sense of humor, and could never really show that in public. I mean, people talk about it, you know, in private and with mm. their family and could be pretty acerbic and pretty ruthless. Um, but we have this, you know, image um, uh, of her as this rather saintly figure. Mm. Uh, and, you know, that's the problem. You know, we, we don't, Badgett, who's the great sort of writer about uh, the monarchy, said we don't want to let light in. And the problem is they have to let light in. They, they need the media to promote what they're doing. Uh, and, you know, when everyone has a smartphone and people are less deferential, their, their behavior will be recorded. I mean, if you remember when Harry was on holiday with friends in Las Vegas and got into a, a stripping game with, at the pool table, um, someone just pulled out a mobile phone and snapped him and it was front page of the tabloids yeah. the next day. So they, it's very difficult to have a private life. And this, of course, is the great debate for people writing about them. Where does the private life stop and the public life begin? 
you know, is it legitimate to talk about, for example, marital problems? But, you know, marital problems, for example, with Prince Charles and then and Diana had a huge, you know, um, uh, was very important in terms of the constitution and what would happen. You know, would would she be queen if they were divorced? Um, could Camilla be, be, be queen as a divorcee? Um, you know, all the questions that, that bedeviled Edward VIII was sort of coming back into play with, with Charles. Mm, it's fascinating. There's also the, as we've alluded to as well, the, the sort of Hamlet, Shakespeare problem of despair. Obviously, a lot of people don't have all that much sympathy for Harry because of the way he's gone about things. But you've seen it with Andrew, you've seen it with Harry. Edward's different, but maybe didn't feel like he was right, you know, for that, for the role or, or whatever, felt a bit of an outsider. That's quite a, a psychologically dangerous place to be in, I suppose. Well, I mean, they've managed it in the past. So if you think going back, um, George VI was was the spare and he didn't inherit, um, but he had several brothers. So the Duke of Kent, for example, had a job in the civil service at one point. Mm. Uh, and, you know, who knows what would have happened. He died during the Second World War in a plane crash. But the Duke of Gloucester, for example, had an army career. Mm. You think of Prince Michael of Kent, the Duke of Kent had army careers. Um, uh, Andrew had a career for 20 years in the Navy. I mean, in, in, the best thing would have been if he could have stayed. The problem was it's an up and out system in the Navy and he'd reached basically the, the level of his talents. He wasn't going to be promoted. Uh, and that was the problem also with Harry, um, that Harry really wasn't going to go much further. But, you know, the, the services are a good uh, environment. They're protected. Uh, you know, they can't go out in the town. They're probably stuck on a base or a ship or something. Uh, they have a discipline there and they have a camaraderie and they're treated as equals. Uh, Andrew found it very difficult for when he said, he had to, you know, I don't quite know when I wear my <laughs> prince's hat. Uh, you know, when am I a naval officer and when am I a royal? Uh, you know, he'd have this bizarre thing where the, 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 the ship would dock at a port and he'd been reporting to the captain of the ship. And then he'd, he'd go and inspect some troops and the captain would be walking three steps behind him. So it's a very difficult balance, but plenty of them have managed it. Edward, for a while, had a career in, 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 uh, with a theatre company, and, and that only collapsed um, because there was a sort of leak. I mean, he, he was stitched up um, because he was filming William at St Andrews. But, I mean, he, that, uh, you know, I think that's, he could have continued to work in the theatre if he'd wanted to. Mm. You know, others like Angus Ogilvy, who's married to Princess Alexandra, had a career in the city. So, uh, you know, there are opportunities for them. Yeah. I mean, both the Duke of York's children have jobs. Uh, I wouldn't say they have careers, but they one works, I think, in the art world and one works in finance. So it's perfectly possible for Harry to have found a role if he had chosen to, to do so. Yeah. And there's a full-time ro role as a royal and doing the charity work. Um, you don't have to go off and become a painter and decorator. It's interesting what you say though about Harry and Andrews reaching their ceiling because I there's this great book, the the Status Game by Wolf Store, which I loved, and he views everything in life through the prism of status, uh, and everybody's playing a slightly different game, which is why we're very snooty about games we don't enjoy. Say fashion, I'm not into fashion, so I sort of am very like, oh, what a load of rubbish that is, because because I'm I don't know how I'd be any. It's not my game, but whatever my game is, maybe podcasting. That is, I suddenly I am quite competitive and status hungry, and you've got to always be having some sort of upward trajectory. 
And I think when you are a spare, you're born at near the top already and you can't go any higher. I think that, that, well, know. I think it's, it's, I mean, Charles was very jealous of Andrew because Charles's life was prescribed. You know, he really couldn't, for example, go and serve in a war zone, which Andrew was allowed to do. Mm. His career in the Navy was very short. Andrew's had a 20 year career, which he'd signed up for. Um, Andrew could get away with, with, uh, you know, sleeping with inappropriate woman. Charles, more difficult because, you know, and, and marrying, frankly, a woman who was not a suitable member of the royal family. Charles couldn't do that. Um, so there's quite a lot of jealousy between them. And I mean, Andrew had a pretty easy go of it. You know, the tension was on Charles mm. and he was able to do a lot of things under the radar. Um, so I, I don't buy the spare argument. I mean, I think it's much better to be the spare than to be the, the heir. Interesting. Interesting. Scar from the Lion King would disagree with you. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that's the that's the sort of Macbeth. Oh, sorry, the Hamlet Lion King, isn't it? That's the, based on that. But uh, one of the key differences between Harry and Edward, say, is the sort of stakes are because Edward, do we, would we say, do we say allegedly or, or definitely worked with the Nazis? Well, Edward was was uh, Edward VIII was was a supporter of the Nazis. He was certainly approached during the war to come back as a puppet king uh, if the Germans invaded Britain, and he was certainly open to that. He was communicating with the enemy in code during the war, which was a capital offence. Wow. He tried to prevent America coming into the war. Um, which of course was made all the difference to us beating the Nazis. He was anti-Semitic. Uh, he believed in the Fuhrer Prinzip. Wow. He made a tour of Germany in 1937 where he, he inspected SS troops and saw all the Nazi leaders, including Hitler. So uh, I think you can hardly call him um, uh, anything except a Nazi sympathizer. Wow. Why was it that he didn't want to take the throne just in England, but if it was as a puppet king, he'd have done it for the Nazis? Well, I think p partly he was manoeuvred off the throne. I think no one thought he would be a suitable king here. And so they used the excuse of Wallace to, to get him off and the excuse of the fact she was divorcee and, 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 and problems. And he was adamant that he wanted to marry her. She actually didn't want to marry him, but he threatened to kill himself if she didn't. Ugh. So she was sort of blackmailed, emotionally blackmailed into it. But I think also once he'd, he realized what he'd given up, it's a bit like, you know, you, you break up with your wife and then they remarry. You realize what you've given up. I think he wanted to big himself up in her eyes. Mm. Uh, you know, he, he, he felt he'd made a mistake and this was an opportunity to get back there. There was also, I mean, he, he was sympathetic to the Nazi aims. He felt the real enemy was, was Russia. But I think also there was a little bit about getting back at the family. And you've got to, you know, you've yeah. got to constantly remember that there are elements here of just personal animosity to the members of the family but in that generation and indeed now more recently you know the the, the what's clearly megan's view of 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 kate is 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 some form of jealousy uh, and she sees her as a vulnerable way of looking at the you know damaging the monarchy so that there are all these ele other elements i think sometimes people don't even know what motivates them they just do it and don't think yeah Going cyclical, back to the beginning of the episode, you know, we're talking about uh, things being censored, not being able to get out. Um, Churchill uh, was among many who knew um, and didn't want this to get out. I yes, I think the extraordinary thing is that Churchill, who'd been a great supporter of, the, of, of Edward VIII um, during the abdication, changed his views after he realised what an awful person he was. I mean, he was involved in negotiations for uh, him to get money from the civil list. Uh, he was offered £25,000 and it was realised that actually he'd been taking a lot of money out of the duchy, um, duchy accounts, uh, giving uh, huge expensive jewels and presents to Wallace and he didn't need this money. 
Uh, and so Churchill really went against him. And then Churchill threatened him with a court-martial during the war. That's He was given the choice of going as governor of the Bahamas or being court-martialed, which is an extraordinary story. Wow. Never really been told before. Uh, and then after the war, when, uh, if you've watched The Crown, you'll know something about this, the, the, there were German documents captured at the end of the war, which had been buried in the forest. And they were captured by the Americans. And these were the diplomatic traffic between Berlin uh, and the various embassies. And it uh, has the whole story of the plot which was called Operation Willie, um, to entice uh, Edward to, to work for the Germans when he was in Spain and Portugal in, in the summer of 1940. Uh, and, and, and other things as well. Um, for example, discussions he had with a German cousin who was a Nazi. Uh, and before the war. And so this stuff they tried to suppress and Churchill was involved in that. Some of the documents were destroyed, uh, but because the American historians said, look, this is important historical material, it should be used, for example, at the Nuremberg trials, and this stuff must come out. But Churchill and Eisenhower managed to delay publication of this material until 1957. Uh, and it was then spun as as basically the, the wild imaginings of these German diplomats, very consistent imaginings. Uh, and there was no truth in it whatsoever. What about Dickie Mountbatten? Um, because again, you, know, you allege, or are we beyond the word allege, I think, uh, because you found this in an FBI file, that he was a rampant offender and that his victims um, included children. Yes, there's quite a lot of evidence that uh, Mountbatten was a paedophile, not just the material in the FBI files, which went back to 1943, but testimony from a whole series of people, including his chauffeur during the uh, Second World War, who, who claims to have uh, uh, taken young children to him or f from him. Um, there is uh, evidence from the two boys I interviewed who were abused at Classyborn in August 1977. A third victim has come forward called Arthur Smith, who lives in Australia, and he's got a case going through the High Court in Belfast at the moment for some sort of compensation. Not against the Mountbatten family, but against um, uh, Kinkora, the boys' home in which he was kept, where a lot of these boys were trafficked. Um, and there's quite a lot of other people have come forward with stories about Mountbatten's either bisexuality or his paedophilia. We have to stress that there is separate things. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think there's plenty of evidence there. And the fact that, you know, Mountbatten is a subject where records are destroyed, people won't talk, I think is quite revealing. Um, uh, I've got a documentary which should be out soon where we have testimony from all sorts of people. For example, uh, a man who's, who was very close to a woman who ran a brothel in Pimlico and Matt Batten would come there and his big thing was getting dressed up in baby clothes. Oh. Um, there's uh, stories um, from journalists uh, of uh, 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 a prostitute in Soho who used to beat him. Uh, so there are lots of different stories uh, from, I think, pretty reputable sources. Often they've come to me by chance. So, for example, the brothel in Pimlico, someone wanted to offer me a, bi a biography of this woman, uh, not knowing about my Mountbatten interest, uh, but we wearing my agent's hat. Um, and this was just literally a, a throwaway remark on one page. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of evidence that's beginning to come to light. Uh, on him. I mean, clearly most of the people who would know anything are dead now. Mm. But, you know, diaries were kept, letters were sometimes written. Uh, there are documents around. Uh, and 
So I think there will be more and more of this emerging. And I think Arthur Smith is a very crucial um, witness because he's prepared to go on camera. Uh, he's given interviews. He's p pursuing a court case. Other victims have tried court cases, but they've basically been, they've basically been uh, run out of money to conduct them or the tribunals have said they it's out of time. Um, so people have tried to shut down the case and, and Arthur Smith seems to be going through. So I think we'll, we'll, Matt Batten's reputation will be reassessed in the next few years. Wow. Wow. That's really interesting to see, uh, to, to sort of be there for history being changed in that sense. Well, you know, here was a man who was the great hero, hero of our time. I think it was one of the books, you know, he did a 12 part series on the BBC, mentor to Charles. What was his relation to Charles? The fam familial? Well, uh, uh, <coughs> Philip, um, uh, Prince Philip was uh, Dickie's nephew and okay. he helped bring him up. D uh, Philip took uh, his name, Mount Batten, when he was naturalized. It was Mount Batten who encouraged the romance with the Queen. It was Mount Batten who got him into the Navy. Philip might well have joined the, the Air Force and would probably have been killed in the Second World War. So the history would be very, very different. You know, mm. the Queen would have married someone else. Uh, so very, very close. He was very, he was the, the best man to Edward VIII, very close to George VI, early mentor to the Queen when she came to power. Uh, and so his influence has gone down through four generations, last great grandchild of Queen Victoria. So he's very much part of the insider royal family. Do you think um, it's possible he might have abused any of the young royals? Well, I mean, people have suggested that. I found no evidence to support that. And I think it's very unlikely. Mm. So only, I'm only thinking because again that secular, uh, uh, what you know, offender, perpetrator, then victim, and that line. Well, I think we certainly found one of the things I did find was a man called Frederick Long who uh, had married Mountbatten and had been his tutor when he was a teenager. When he was at uh, Dartmouth, he had to go off and be personally tutored because he'd been ill. Uh, and what was fascinating is that in the miscellaneous correspondence for, I think, 1916, there are love letters from Frederick Lawrence L Long to Dickey. Uh, and Long never married. He was, became a Church of England vicar. Um, and this is the only correspondence in, you know, 54,000 files at Southampton, which relate to Long. And yet Long must have remained in touch with Long because he was the minister who married him. So they must have been close. So I think there is some evidence that Long abused Mountbatten, and this is where it all began. Wow. Yeah, that often, it seems to be that way. It's a pattern it? of behavior. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. And then Mel Basson would use brandy and lemonade, apparently, to seduce, to bring out children in Kinkora. Well, that's that was what was interesting. That that was the story that Norman Neild, the, the, the Second World War chauffeur, told. Uh, and that was only appeared in a paper in New Zealand. Uh, and that came out only because Norman Neild said, I've just read Spycatcher, it's got lots of attention, I've got an even bigger story. But the Norman Neild story was suppressed here. Robert Maxwell was sent it, one of the journalists, uh, and the journalist who wrote the piece is still alive in Australia. Uh, and I, I hope will appear in this program. Wow. Um, but it, the whole story was suppressed here. And that's the problem. So many of these stories just don't, still don't get seen here. Uh, and, you know, it's easier now with social media and we have a, a much more pluralistic press. So uh, it's more likely. But um, brandy and, 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 and uh, lemonade was, was actually one of his favorite drinks. It comes out in some of the search and uh, it, it's come out in other episodes. And I think people have come to that separately. It's not a, a something that they would read up easily. Mm. What is an MI5 blackmail honey trap? 
Well, um, this is the reference to Kinkora. Um, a honey trap is basically when uh, generally intelligence service uh, runs, for example, a brothel like uh, Kitty, uh, Salon Kitty in, in, in by the Germans, the Nazis. And they use basically the, the, the pillow talk from the people there um, to, to get secrets. So um, the idea was that, uh, certainly in Salon Kitty, that people would, would say revealing things and that would be passed back by the, the, the prostitutes. Kinkora was a boy's home and it was, um, uh, the boys clearly had no family. There was no one really taking, keeping an eye on them. The man who ran Kinkora, William McGrath, was a, 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 a involved with um, one of the, the, the loyalist organizations and also a paedophile himself. And there's some evidence that he was trafficking boys from Kinkora because, of course, no one knew what was going on with them to uh, both rich um, Anglo-Irish, it was called the Anglo-Irish Vice Ring, uh, a, a group of people centered on country houses across Ireland. Um, but also, and, and the authorities, so MI5, who were the intelligence organization in Northern Ireland, knew this. And they allowed this to happen because, of course, this gave them a chance to blackmail people mm. uh, to work for them. So there were quite a lot of loyalist terrorists, for example, who were involved in this, who were pedophiles. I mean, even suggestion that Jerry Adams, I think, his brother was convicted as a pedophile. So it was on both sides. And so they used these poor boys as pawns, really, to to get uh, these people by the short and curlies and then get them to cooperate. Why is it that the Irish government is holding stuff back and not letting you get the full information? Because wouldn't they want this to get to light? No, they don't. They don't want, I mean, there was probably quite a lot of, um, well, a lot of this stuff is illegal. Um, uh, people turning a blind eye to it. Uh, you know, in Northern Ireland, memories are long. Um, there might well be um, repercussions to people uh, as stuff came out. We, you know, we always keep quiet about the informants, for example. So, um, no, I think it's a very sensitive subject, so I can understand why they want to shut it down. But, you know, we have to think that also there are victims here. And these were young yeah. boys who really had no one to look out for them. Uh, and they were just pawns in a, in, a, in a bigger game. What does it mean to you as a writer to get this story validated and more, more for consensus and, and more known? Well, I think these boys deserve justice. I, just, I think the truth needs to come out. It's It's... I'm always uh, um, uh, pleased when other historians find information that I haven't got. So it's not just me banging this drum. Uh, the television programs, you know, now have the courage to do it. I've been talking to the broadcaster for at least five years about this program, and they've been very nervous about doing it. Mm. So, um, uh, you know, I, I feel that the, 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 there's been a recalibration and it's people are more prepared to accept these things and to broadcast them, uh, you know, to suggest that the, the Prince Philip's uncle was a paedophile, I think would have been a difficult program mm -hmm. even a few years ago, but now they're both dead. I think it's probably a bit easier. But yeah, I mean, you know, I, I do the best I can with the books, you know, research them heavily. And I, to find that they're, they're validated by other people's research is always very um, encouraging. It means I'm not out on a limb because it can be quite lonely sometimes um, saying some of the things I'm saying. Yeah, there, there's one, another question I want to ask you. But first, just tell people where they can get, you know, where do you want to send them to? Well, I mean, I'd love them, I mean, uh, to, to see the sort of stuff I write. Uh, the, the most recent book is called Traitor King, The Scandalous Exile of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. It's on Amazon. The previous book, The Mount Battens, Their Lives and Loves, 
Uh, and then before that, I did intelligence history. I did a book called Stalin's Englishman, uh, The Lives of Guy Burgess. Uh, and the Prince Andrew book, I'm afraid, isn't sold yet, so it's not on Amazon. Um, but I hope that will be out in 2025. I, if you Google my name, you will find my website. You can contact me there. You can record interests. You can pass me stories. Uh, and I, too, do a podcast called The Scandalmongers, which, um, again, if you just Google, will, will come up. Who is a heretic that you admire? That's a good question. Um, I have a sort of um, a sort of admiration for Guy Burgess because though he was a spy and he betrayed his country, you know he gave up a lot. He 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 was, I think, he was. Um, uh, he, he went against the grain. I mean, he 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 picked his football team when he was a, was in effect a teenager and he stuck with them all the way through through thick and thin lots of people were, were communist supporters as young men and then either during the nazi soviet pact or during the second world war or czechoslovakia or, or uh, elsewhere other times uh left the communist party they certainly didn't work for the for the kgb which was a brutal organization so i mean you know in some ways it's a grudging sympathy mm-hmm. but he did stick with them he never recanted he 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 fled to the russia which is a pretty awful place when he went there in 1951 uh, and um, he he stood by what he believed was right. He believed there were two big power blocks, uh, America and Russia. And in order to avoid a world war, he had to help Russia because he'd seen some of the secrets as a foreign office official uh, and and some of the things that were going on, which he didn't agree with. So I think he was a true heretic, really, because his life really suffered as a result of, of, of sticking with this decision he made, as you say, as I say, as a teenager. Thank you, Andrew Loney, for being on the podcast again. What a pleasure it was to see him and to hang out. We had a nice chat on the way there and back and uh, walking around a bit. And it was really nice just to hang out with Andrew. He's such a lovely bloke and he's such a great guy for exposing all this stuff. So do check out his books. He's a fantastic writer and publisher and he's exposing this stuff. He is a true heretic. Go and check out the YouTube version, of course, of this, Heretics, Andrew Gold. Go and find how we look. We look wonderful, I think. Um, And uh, keep on listening to this podcast. Share it around and let heretics take over the world.